Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. It's episode 104, and it's the July 2020 Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast. Now, this particular podcast and research review is all about social issues, particularly uh, childhood overweight and obesity, exercise inequality, access to physical activity inequality. This is super interesting, particularly if you are a coach or if you are a medical professional or or other otherwise just interested in this topic. And remember, as always, if you're not a subscriber to our Barbell Medicine Research Review, you can go get the individual issues on our website. Uh, They're downloadable in a very nice PDF format, so you can check those out. Unfortunately, I do have an announcement. The Barbell Medicine Research Review is going on pause for about the next five to six months as we really try to ramp up our efforts in creating the Barbell Medicine Certificate Program, basically our coaching certification, um, not only for strength and conditioning professionals, but also for medical professionals and getting the CMEs and CEUs and all that sort of stuff that we need to do. So uh, unfortunately, we have to put some things on pause while we ramp up our efforts there and try to get that uh, Q1 release date. So that's what we're doing now, and we're looking forward to getting back into the research review game as soon as that project is complete. So hopefully everyone understands. And again, if you're interested in any of the topics we've discussed in our research review or just looking to stay up to date, all of the back issues are chocked with information. So if you haven't been a subscriber, if you haven't checked out any of our research review stuff, you can get the January 2019 and January 2020 issues for free, see if you like them, and then if you uh, want to kind of click through the different issues and see if there's topics that uh, really uh, uh, interest you, you can do that, and we definitely appreciate you checking it out. But without any further ado, let's hop in to this month's Research Review Podcast. All right, so as mentioned previously, this is uh, the podcast number 104, episode 104, Barbell Medicine Research Review for July 2020. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and uh, normally Austin interviews me, but due to his scheduling, he was in the hospital, not like in the hospital, like hospitalized, but like working in the hospital. And so instead of him interviewing me, since he wasn't available for that, we have Michael Ray, What's the Jordan? third most handsome doctor in North America. Whoa. Well, he's the second. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. I don't, what I don't want to like put myself uh, into that competition because I'd I'd hate to win. So I'll. Just, I'll <laughs> I appreciate that. that. I appreciate. You know, people ask all the time, they're like, "Who's the most?" And it's like, "Are you kidding me?" Like that. That's the only way I hype myself up. <laughs> uh, so right, this is episode 104, Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast, July 2020. We're talking about all sorts of social issues with respect to physical activity, nutrition, and pain. Uh, this month I decided to tackle exercise privilege and the idea is that there are inequalities in not only access to physical activity, just, uh, straight up like where people live and like having access to, um, you know, places to be physically active. Uh, if you want to call them physical activity deserts, um, similar to food deserts, but for yeah. physical activity, that that's a thing. But then also just straight up socioeconomic status and in particular income levels. Do, do income levels influence how much uh, exercise people get and then how often they're actually um, being active, period? So not only frequency, 
but also total total exercise volume. And so <clears throat> the paper I reviewed was called Inequalities in Participation and Time Spent in Moderate to Vigorous Physical Activity, a pooled analysis of the cross-sectional health surveys for England, uh, 2008, 2012, and 2016 by Scholes et al. This article came out in 2020, so it's recent. It's also open access. So if you want to like go read the whole article, it is a pretty good article in and of itself. The My main sort of warning or caveat here is that the discussion of the statistics is not deep enough for most people without a statistical like education, statistics education to like understand why they chose the methods that they did. And I go into that in some detail in my article. So that being said, you can still glean a lot of information from the article, even if you don't understand the statistics. It's just that's my warning. And I, and I say that having had to spend a lot of extra time, like not only relearning some stats that, you know, either don't pertain to like epidemiology or, or, or other medical science that I tend to focus on or things that I literally have never heard of that are mo- more relegated for like economics. So in did, any case, did they just leave a lot out on methodology or they reference other papers where the methods are described or like the rationale is described, but those aren't open open access. And then Uh, even in those papers, when I pulled them, it still didn't make sense. And I think it's just more like academics talking to other academics and they're like, you get it right. Cause you know, you're an academic and it's like, well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I had to do some, uh, remediation for my own statistical knowledge just to kind of figure out why they did this. But you know, just as a brief background, we talk about this all the time, like physical activity or inactivity is a huge problem globally. Um, and then if we just focus on the United States, for example, uh, you know, only 26% of men, 19% of women, and 20% of adolescents meet the current recommendations for exercise. However, that's probably only uh, uh, isolated to the aerobic training guidelines, the 150 to 300 minutes of physical activity per week, a moderate intensity uh, uh, aerobic training per week, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous uh, intensity aerobic training per week, not necessarily that and resistance training. So, and, and further that's self-reported meaning like you ask people, Hey, uh, how, how much activity do you do? And people overestimate. Yeah. Right. And so like, if you, if you asked me, you know, gun to head, like what is the true rate of physical inactivity in the United States? I'd say that 90% of the population is uh, insufficiently active. Yeah. But, but the, the other problem with like looking at these statistics, especially if you're going to try to compare two different groups. So like a high income group and a low income group is that there's a positive skew. And what that means, that's a fancy way of describing like this bell curve, but instead of it being like a normal bell curve where the, you know, the, the top, the peak is in the middle and the, the yeah. tails on each side are, are, are equivalent, the positive skew means that the slope is, uh, that the peak is actually shifted right. And there's more area under the curve to the left. There are more people to the left. And if you think about that with respect to physical activity, there are many people who are not physically active at all. They're getting, they're getting zero. And, and so that skews the statistics. Um, and so this paper was interesting in that they not only do they just straight up compare like low income to high income and how much physical activity they're getting that w- that met moderate to vigorous intensity criteria, uh, 
but of those who were physically active, like what was their exercise volume? So they, then they even like further focused down and restricted it to like, okay, we're going to eliminate all the people who are inactive and just look at the active folks. Um, it, which is pretty, pretty novel. And as yeah. other researchers like to say, uh, elegant. Yeah. So, well, it's because you, you'd want to know, right. You, you didn't just, the like preliminary review is like, Oh yeah. So like more people are active from high income households than low income households. Okay. Like not, a, not a huge surprise there, but what you'd want to know is like, are there really more people being active from the high income households? Like more individuals or are there like super exercisers and more of those that exist in the high income right. households so like that's you know that. correct exactly so that's why the the statistics were a little bit more uh complicated than just like let's just compare yeah. so pretty pretty interesting stuff this obviously was done from large data sets in the uk which um you know, if you're not from the uk you probably don't know how they do these national surveys but i gotta hand it to them the Brits, they, these guys do a smash up job. So like in the United States, we do the NHANES thing, the national yep. health and, yep. you know, that this, you know, phone based or sometimes just mail based survey where you, you know, fill this thing out or you answer a phone questionnaire or whatever. They send an interviewer to these residences, like a, oh. a live human. And then all the, the, all the adults in the household, uh, which they said anybody over the age of 16 got qualified. Uh, they interview them in person. So if they, anybody has any questions on like what to fill out or what to report, like that person's there. And then further, they send a nurse back to do like to collect samples if needed. So oh, wow. take like anthropometric measurements, take blood samples, urine samples, whatever. And then every year they pick a different sort of health topic that pertains to the sort of national goals. So it started in like 91, I believe. And they pick a new topic every year. And, and they were like, we want to get you know, X percentage of people to be more active and we want to reduce heart disease by this much and reduce, you know, chronic kidney disease by this much. And they keep, and they study these individual topics. So the reason why in the title it was 2008, 2012, and 2016 is because that was specifically about physical activity. Uh, and so they used all the data from those three years. Uh, and just to give you guys an idea of like the scope of this, we're talking about like 180,000 adults have been interviewed in person, seen a nurse to get these measurements, et cetera, um, over the time that this data collection has been taking place. For the physical activity, like this particular uh, data set is about 35,000 individuals, which is pretty big. And again, yeah, it's pretty robust, pretty robust. So anyway, that's like the background on this. Uh, did, you, did you actually read the my paper? Mike. I do, man. I actually read everyone's paper every month for the most part. I may have missed a month here or there, but for the most part. Well, to your point, like, because um, I, I, I'm recalling now that you did talk about some of the, the, the stat, like, uh, involvement, because it goes from, like, binary to ordinal to continuous variables. So, like, looking at all three with that, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And you just, like, again, if you're if you're doing sort of a complex comparison it, you can't just uh, do the binary variable, which would basically be like, is somebody active or not? Yes, no. <laughs> right, exactly. Because then again, you, you might find the same sort of relationship like, okay, on average, people are more active um, 
in the high income household than low income households, but it doesn't really tell you with enough granularity to kind of make either policy recommendations or sort of, you know, elucidate the actual issue. It's just like, okay, yes, they are. It doesn't tell you by how much. Um, and it doesn't tell you like, are more people active than not? It's just that, you know, it, it, it just says on, on average, more activities being done in high income households. So, um, in any case, the quick and dirty of like what was found here is that from a, at first, just like overall, yes, there's more people that are physically active sufficient to meet the current guidelines. And I'll stipulate just the aerobic guidelines because they did not ask specifically about resistance training, but more people are sufficiently active um, to meet the aerobic training guidelines criteria in the high income households than the low income households. So this is, you know, from high income folks, it's like 65%. And from low income households, it's 39%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So pretty substantial gap. And, and and this is all, this all has to be moderate to vigorous intensity activity. Um, The biggest difference that happens between the two groups is in what the category they call sports exercise. And so how they discern this, they basically, there were 10 like specifically listed sports, one of which was resistance training. And they had pictures too, just in case people were like, we don't, we don't know what that is, but they had. Yeah. So effectively the people from high income households reported that they were engaging in more sports and exercise by uh, like orders of like two and a half to three extra hours per week. Hmm. Um, and some of that effect that then low income households. So they're already up, let's just say three hours of physical activity, 180 minutes, which is, uh, substantial. Some of that was mitigated by occupational physical activity, meaning, meaning that the low income household, uh, individuals tended to like walk more or do more lifting, carrying, et cetera, at work. But that was only by about 15 to 30 minutes. So it wasn't enough to like overcome the deficit they were already at. And as far as why like this income difference kind of resulted in this fairly large physical activity gap or inequality, there are a couple different mechanisms here. So thing one has to do with just straight up geography. So the proximity to physical activity spaces. Yeah. Built Uh, environment. Yeah, correct. Right. So parks, walking trails, cycling trails, gyms. It was actually really interesting. There's another study that was done in Latin America that I kind of plugged in here where effectively they, the, the individuals of a community, um, were, were looked at for about two years prior to this, these gyms, these training facilities being made free. And they looked at like participation rates when it was, when it cost money to participation rates when it was free and the Mm -hmm. participation rates almost tripled when they made it free. Is that like and, a grant funded? Area? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And they did the same thing actually in the UK, a similar study where they basically made gyms, you know, either free or like very, very low cost. So very, very affordable for folks to have access to. And again, the participation rates went way up, um, particularly amongst those in low income households. So it shows yeah. that just income right there, um, in addition to the built environments, those are two separate, you know, two separate things can have, uh, you know, 
impact on on people's ability to sort of be physically active. The third thing that they didn't really discuss in too much detail, but kind of it was kind of presented itself is that the individuals um, from low income households tended to have less free time to actually be engaged in sports and exercise. They had basically not only were they they working a little bit more, or at least not reporting having you know just free t- as much free time, yeah. uh, they, and then on, on top of not having access necessarily, and then not necessarily having the funds to to you know pay for a gym membership or something like that. So uh, it, the best part about this study is that they also like corrected these things for like self reported health. So how healthy people said that they were, like oh I'm in good health, I'm in fair health, or I'm in poor health. Um, so you don't just have like this healthy individual bias, like, oh yeah, people on ever in higher income households generally report higher levels of health. So they're more likely to be active. Um, these relationships persisted even despite that correction. Also, even despite the correction for smoking status, although more individuals in low income households smoked. Um, and also even persisted after adjustment for BMI. So on average, it, the higher your BMI, the less likely you are to meet physical activity guidelines, just as a general rule. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but these part these relationships still persisted. So it kind of just shows that, yep, there is an impact of socioeconomic status on your likelihood, the probability of you participating in physical activity to meet guidelines and just being physically active, period. But like being sufficiently active. Um, and then the final most interesting thing was, yeah, the, the kind of assumption that not only do people from high income households, not only do they generally per, uh, participate in more physical activity, but there's more of them participating in physical activity to meet guidelines than those in low income households. It's not just a bunch of super exercisers and then the same number of sedentary yeah. folks. So what do you do with all of this is the question. Uh, like we need to remove a major financial barrier to access to gyms but but. yeah yeah, right yeah so i I think that that's probably a reasonable sort of policy you know a potential policy you know obviously the local community and that climate is is, you know everybody everywhere is different but i think when when trying to make policy guidelines to sort of achieve goals um and in particular the uk's goals to like reduce physical inactivity by i think they said like by 20 percent or something like that by 2030 um so so how are you going to do that it's like well it's not just telling people that they need to exercise more like certainly education plays a role here so not only like making people aware of you know benefits of exercise how to exercise you know what are the recommendations for exercise etc but then also increasing access so you got to have this kind of two-pronged approach here and kind of uh, eliminating that that uh, inequality by hook or by crook seems to be a reasonable idea, but I am not a politician or policymaker. I'm just a scientist. So I will try to con- convey the information to the best of my ability, and hopefully the politicians and policymakers do the right thing. Um, which brings me to the last thing. So we're, uh, we're selling masks. We got the uh, Barbell Medicine graphic masks. And people are like, why are you selling masks? We didn't know that, you know, you guys were in the mask business. It's like, well, we're not, but we're, we're donating a hundred percent of the proceeds to the lift for life charity, which is based out of St. Louis. And, uh, it's cool because they work with a 
couple thousand, I think it's 4,000 plus youth from the St. Louis area, uh, impoverished youth, and it gives them different access to uh, physical activity uh, that they can do. So one of which is a weightlifting team, actually. And the, well, the weightlifting... Yeah, the weightlifting team has actually churned out like a bunch of national, like junior and and and, and teen national like qualifiers uh, and champions, which is which is cool because you know it's called barbell medicine, guys, not like <laughs> <laughs> kettlebell medicine or endurance medicine. But uh, I just thought that that was a cool charity to support. Uh, um, some people I know from uh, back in St. Louis are heavily involved in that, and so. Yeah, if you uh, need a mask and you want to rep Barbell Medicine, we'd appreciate it. And, you know, 100% of your proceeds go to that charity. We're also we also have a link, like a, a little donate button. If you just you know if you live in a different country and we can't get you a mask, but you want to donate to the cause, that'd be cool. We want to uh, end up sending them a, a pretty hefty check. So uh, every, every little bit helps. And uh, that was my plug that I somehow wrapped into my research review. How did I do, you Mike? Man, I was impressed. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even. That was right off the cuff too. So I think I'm ready for live. I think I'm ready for live radio. Um, cool. Well, I appreciate you interviewing me and taking the place of Austin. Let's uh, let's go to the rest of our reviewers this month and see what they have to say. Awesome. Awesome, Rocky. Austin, what's going on, dude? What's up? Ready to tackle this research review? It's the research <laughs> review. We're about to drop the most nuanced album of 2020 <laughs> in the middle of it. Yeah. All right. So this is our research review from uh, research review podcast from July 2020. We just took on the social determinants of health on Moss and then kind of split up to you know our own pet projects. So you know Mike, go figure, decided to discuss pain. <laughs> Derek, go figure, is talking about youth. <laughs> and st- sports kind of uh and then austin though with a, pl- in a weird plot twist yeah decided right. to take on uh many adults aka children yeah and obesity <laughs> this is the biggest plot twist i've seen i thought it was i thought it, you know it's a little late for april fools and i know austin uh you know normally deals with adults so yeah this was interesting what yeah. made you pick this paper dude well i think because it's something that yeah, as far as childhood obesity goes it's something that i feel like i see the consequences of down the line or that i'm that i'm going to continue seeing the consequences of over time and um you know uh insofar as we've had you know a, a pretty significant amount of difficulty putting a dent in this problem in the adult population uh perhaps we may have better success trying to target things earlier on um you know, to whatever extent we're able to achieve success on that front and and reduce the downstream morbidity and mortality that I end up seeing in adults. Oh, yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And I think there's some fairly strong evidence towards prevention, you know, being being a greater tool than sort of treating uh, folks in a, uh, when they're already in adulthood for a variety of reasons. But, uh, you know, let's talk to it. Let's let's talk about it. All right. So the paper is titled Social Determinants of Overweight and Obesity Among Children in the United States. This is by my boy, Yusuf, which again, I well, I'm not entirely sure. So, but I, my, I mean that colloquially, like my boy, hey, you're my boy. Um, what was like the, the, the structure of this review? 
This is not a randomized controlled trial. Is a this is no 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 yes no. It's actually this is not a review paper, nor is it a randomized controlled trial. It's kind of a cross-sectional analysis of some data that were collected by the U.S. National Survey of Children's Health. That's kind of a subset of the census uh, uh, data and Hain stuff, but kind of like that for for children exactly from 2016 and 2017, and it's a pretty substantial size data set. It it ultimately included right around 30 million children. Um, which is obviously a large sample size. And then they, they you know, uh, look at that, stratify things as far as normal weight, uh, overweight, i.e., you know, an, an over uh, 85% of age and sex matched uh, uh, BMI, and then obesity, uh, and tried to look at what factors, you know, from a social determinant standpoint, uh, kind of had strong ties to these kids' risk of having overweight or obesity. They looked at a variety of demographic factors, a bunch of socioeconomic factors, some behavioral factors uh, on both the uh, on the the parent side as well, which is kind of a unique aspect, um, and then some environmental characteristics in terms of the, the you know where these kids are living, where they're growing up, the environment, the kind of the, the socio cultural context that they come up in. Oh, I just felt like this is super interesting talking about the social determinants, social inputs here, um, because as we were kind of joking about last night when we were looking at the new coding system for, uh, you know, obesity, the right now the code that you use to like diagnose somebody in the electric electronic medical record is like obesity due to excess calories. <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, duh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like. Uh, okay, well, while true, that doesn't actually get at the root cause here, which could be, you know, multifactorial lifestyle, social, you know, environmental, all sorts of things. Or, or it could be, you know, more biological. Somebody could have an endocrine disorder. Somebody could be on a medication, you know. Uh, uh, it could be a genetic thing. They have, be, have a leptin receptor, you know, issue. Yeah. So so just the the current even the current coding system like reduces this down to just, it's just calories. Uh, but actually discussing the social determinants here and social impact, particularly at a young age, I think is, is fascinating. So they, they did this from a survey. How, how many, how big was the, was the survey? Like how many people did they get? Uh, like uh, it ended up including about 30 million children total um, of, uh, yeah, of whom about 21 million or about 69% were non-overweight and about 31% were overweight or obese. And that is a fairly representative kind of sample with respect to the general population where about a third have overweight or obesity um, in, across a whole bunch of other kind of data sets to, you know, to, to compare this with. And, you know, I like to, to your point, I like the way that, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, excess body fat and obesity at the seminars, the way you frame it is that there's this what we call a final common pathway at the at the very, very end, the ultimate kind of most uh, 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 final cause of overweight and obesity is excess calories, of course, but there are a whole host of upstream variables and inputs and influences and and moderators and confounders and things like that that can all drive the ultimate process. And so it shouldn't be surprising, you know, when we take a step back and think, you know, where is it going to be most effective for us to intervene? Um, our 
interventions that just target that final common pathway of calories, i.e. like telling somebody to eat less calories, that doesn't really tend to work like almost ever. <laughs> just just telling somebody that uh, uh, tend to work. Whereas the higher upstream, uh, you're able to uh, provide some sort of an intervention, whether towards the individual, the community, the society, like health policy, access, all kinds of other things that we want to try to figure out where are we most likely to have a significant impact, um, the higher upstream you can go towards these other inputs to that final pathway kind of uh, is, is substantially more likely to have a significant effect, not just and, and potentially not just on the individual, but on a whole subpopulation or on the uh, or on the whole population. So that's kind of the idea is we want to try to figure out which of these upstream variables that we can look at from a biological, psychosocial, kind of uh, socio-cultural, environmental context, which have the tightest ties to downstream, you know, calorie intake and thus overweight and obesity um, so that we can attempt to, we can at least initiate discussions about how would we go about intervening on these upstream variables? Because um, it's one thing to tell somebody to eat less calories, or it's another thing to, you know, offer some sort of a medication that can alter their energy intake. But it's a whole different type of conversation to talk at a social, political, economic kind of public policy level about interventions that can be done on some of these upstream variables. That's where things kind of, to some extent, leave the realm of being discussed among scientists and physicians and starts to bring in, you know, politicians and economists and lay people and, and things get a lot trickier, a lot more contentious um, and and uh, uh, a lot a lot harder to uh, to have conversations about those things. But it kind of has to happen if we want to have any hope of actually influencing this problem. Yeah, if we want to do anything. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I like uh, I like where, where we're headed with this. The the uh, idea is that to, we're trying to find identify um, the factor or factors in, in this case that have the most robust sort of impact on childhood obesity and, and overweight. Um, con in contrast to finding many small things that either can't be modified or have very little effect, um, or both. So the example is that like there are hundreds of genes that are associated with um, excess adiposity in, in the adulthood, but one you, you can't really modify them, you know, yet because CRISPR, so we, we don't we don't have it yet, and they all have very very small effects. Meaning that in, in isolation, they, they probably don't do anything. But if you had a bunch of them, maybe there's you know some additional cause there, uh, but that would be just, you know, that would not be a genetic cause of obesity to be an input, but it, the, the effects are rather small and you can't really do anything about it. This, you can do something about, or at least try to do something about these uh, social issues, uh, particularly ones that have very large, robust effects. And even if you can't do anything directly yourself, um, certainly with, with potential policies or at least understanding, uh, better where somebody is coming from and the struggle that they're facing, um, in sort of correcting this uh this issue so what sort of things did they actually find that had like the biggest impact on uh, childhood obesity yeah so there's a whole lot of data uh, out of this paper and and i spent some time kind of re uh, uh creating some of the some of the tables and and presenting the data but they looked at demographic factors obviously just like sex and some age cohorts uh, as well as race race or ethnic background 
between like non-Hispanic whites, non-Hispanic blacks, Hispanic uh, and, and kind of other. They looked at a variety of socioeconomic factors, where their parents were born, what the primary language in the household is, the family structure, poverty level, um, education uh, attained by the adults in the household, health insurance. Um, they looked at parents uh, kind of coping skills with respect to the demands of raising children, which is kind of an interesting one where, you know, the parents were asked to rate whether they're coping very well, somewhat well, not very well with um, the demands of raising their kids. Uh, And they looked at a bunch of environmental characteristics like the neighborhood amenities that were available to these kids. So that would be like sidewalks and walking paths and parks, playgrounds, rec rec centers, libraries, things like that, and, and kind of quantitated, you know, in other words, how many of these amenities did, uh, did the kids have access to and tried to see whether there were kind of correlations there. So I summarized a whole bunch of this and, and they, they did a few different kind of analyses. Um, they looked at rates of overweight alone. Again, that's like if your BMI for age and sex match uh, is cohort is uh, in the 85th to 95th percentile obesity, which would be over the 95th percentile for age and sex. Um, and they restricted it to children in their age range of 10 to 17 years old. Um, they said that actually for kids who are younger than 10, there's other data that say that parents tend to overestimate their kid's height and underestimate their kid's weight. So they didn't want to let that interfere with the quality of the, the data that they had in this paper. So they limited it to 10 to 17 year old kids and they constructed kind of a few, uh, you know, uh, weighted models, um, to look at that. And they found a few characteristics that were more prevalent among children with overweight or obesity compared to their non-overweight counterparts. They a little bit more often tended to be male. They actually tended to fall younger in that kind of age spectrum, so more in the 10 to 12 year age range than in the, like the 16 to 17 year age range. M- much more often tended to be Hispanic, living with single parents, or the adult in the household uh, having a high school degree, uh, GED, or or kind of below uh, level of education. They also, you know, had some other kind of uh, uh, analyses that revealed res- relationships with with poverty level. Uh, and obviously education level comes up again and again in a lot of these data sets, um, both in children and adults and in other health conditions and in other populations, we see education level having a pretty significant, um, uh, tie in with a ton of important health outcomes. And just as an aside, I shared another paper, uh, uh, last month, um, from the Lancet where they looked at modifiable risk factors with respect to cardiovascular disease and all cause mortality across like 21 different countries. Um, and, uh, among the highest, uh, risks towards all cause mortality, um, low education was up there, like the, the, um, among the top four that they had alongside smoking, uh, low grip strength, interestingly reflective of strength and, and poor dietary quality were kind of the top ones for all cause mortality. So, uh, obviously those fit our biases as far as we wanting people to be more educated, um, getting strong, improving their nutritional health and, and obviously not smoking. And insofar as those things carry back towards childhood more often for, you know, education and, and uh, nutritional habits and things like that, those are obviously influenced by tons of environmental factors, including, you know, what the home is like that they grow up in, what the adult in the household knows about any of this stuff, what the adult in the household does, their own lifestyle habits, obviously imprint on the child. And, and there's a ton of uh, social and cultural influences there. And so there are tons of other data points and relationships and analyses that were uh, examined in, in the paper that I get into in, in my article on this. But um, definitely another piece of a very interesting kind of overall body of evidence looking at a lot of these social factors 
And uh, when I get into more of the discussion, there's another review article that I that I kind of reference and get into as far as, you know, there are really interesting influences even that have been discovered in going all the way back into like the perinatal period, uh, even like preconception, you know, influences on downstream childhood uh, uh, overweight and obesity risk and things that carry forward all the way from there. So, so this stuff is super complicated. And, um, you know, I think that it's easy for folks who are unfamiliar with this, uh, uh, with this evidence or who don't work with patients to say that, you know, maybe they themselves have lost some weight and said, yeah, I just did it by eating less. And that's all that people need to do. And, you know, it's pretty easy. And if you can't do it, then you're like weak willed or something like that. Um, I think that's a pretty simplistic and inaccurate view of how complicated these things uh, really, really are in, in the real world and all the different you know, influences and barriers and challenges and limitations that people may have in, in achieving that, which, which, which then raises a lot of these difficult, challenging conversations that we definitely don't, uh, you know, like me and you, for example, we don't have a monopoly on this conversation as far as we're, you know, we, we view ourselves as more of communicators of this stuff and, and aiming to educate, you know, lay, lay folks and the public and, and our colleagues in, in clinical medicine. Um, but this conversation needs to, be ongoing and escalate further into the public policy realm. And that's definitely where more voices need to be heard, but it gets pretty contentious. So what do we do with this information is the next question, of course, right? Yeah. I mean, the goal the goal is to be honest brokers of information rather than issue advocates, because that, that actually puts our place appropriately so as sort of like, you know, scientific arbiters, because our training is not in politics or policy making like how to do that and how to, you know, get bills passed, for example. But our training is like in, you know, health, public health, medicine, and, you know, exercise. So we have to use, you know, play to our strengths here. So I, I think people, when you start talking about this, this stuff, sometimes they, they can get a little uncomfortable with what you're saying because they automatically default to like, well, what, what's the policy going to be? It's like, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I could hazard a few guess guesses, but I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. And it depends on a lot of different things. It's going to vary by geography, by, you know, potential resources, by, uh, you know, what the, the different community sort of preferences. Um, but yeah. to, to, to ignore that these factors exist uh, just puts us further behind. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the ways that I can that I can conceptualize it is we talk a lot about you know, uh, explaining a bunch of phenomena that we see in human, you know, physiology and human in human health. And we criticize people who view a lot of this stuff and try to explain what the, they observe through just like a common sense kind of an approach, right? Like explaining your back pain with the common sense of, oh, you're, you had some spinal flexion or something and everything is way more complicated than that. Well, this is a similar conversation where once we start veering a little too far outside of our realm, people say, what's the policy? And I'm like, well, I could hazard like a quote unquote common sense type guess as far as what a policy could look like that might address some of these things. But at the same time, you know, like sociopolitical stuff and, and the economic implications and all that stuff is, you know, that's all about trade-offs and unintended consequences and things like that, that I don't necessarily know that I am able to recognize and and, and figure out all the downstream uh, consequences, which is why we need a lot of voices involved in the conversation, including those who have more expertise in, in those realms. Yeah. 
Yeah, people say, oh, you're, we- you're waffling, you're weaseling out of this. It's like, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it just seems highly unlikely that one individual would possess all of the knowledge, all of the skills, <laughs> all of the expertise to you know transcend multiple different fields at a high level yeah. and put it all together uniquely. Uh, and that's not us. You know, yeah. if that person does exist, they don't work for Barbell Medicine. Happy if you send us an application, we'll hire you right away. Right, right. Um, so now that we're talking about politics, Austin, what are your thoughts on a, a universal basic basic income? Oh, no, boy. I'm just kidding. We're going to end Austin's <laughs> section there. <laughs> and, uh, we'll get into the rest of our team's review right after this. My name is Derek Miles. I am a physical therapist with Barbell Medicine's pain and rehabilitation team. Great to have you back. This is the final version of the July of uh, the Barbell Medicine Research Review for July 2020. Um, we're going to be taking a little hiatus, which we talked about earlier, but we're going to talk about your article this month. Now, the title that, which I really like here, is "Walking to the Store Should Not Have to Serve as General." physical preparation. So this is a look at food deserts and the role they play in healthy eating. Uh, for the listeners at home, if you're unfamiliar with the term food desert, um, this is effectively a place where it's difficult to purchase or obtain healthy food. Um, just we're talking about fresh fresh fruits and vegetables, um, high quality uh, lean proteins, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whereas the converse of that is called a food oasis. So effectively where that stuff's everywhere. Um, how did you come about choosing this topic? Like, like, cause this is not pain <laughs> and it's not like youth resistance training. So this is like off the beaten path for you a little bit. Um, how did you end up uh, choosing this article? Well, partially it was because I have a, a close friend who does research in this, uh, actually this exact topic, her entire job right now is trying to figure out a way to get local farmers food in Florida to grocery stores in Florida, which sounds like it should be an easy thing, but the distribution and some of the rural nature of the state makes it difficult with which to get some of that food. And then I think some of it too, it it made sense to me as a topic because I grew up in rural West Virginia. So when the concept was first introduced, it made perfect sense because growing up, there was a point where I think we were a 20 minute drive from the closest grocery store when I was really young. Right. But you still also had you uh, had uh, transportation available to you to make that trek. So it's a uh, yeah, it's slightly different as far as access goes. All right. So we're talking about food deserts. And in particular, are, are you looking at like how people are getting there or just the impact of food deserts on uh, health of a population? Well, it took much more of a, a scoping review approach to this just because I think it is a concept that people should be aware of. It's to your point about it not being physical activity or youth training. It it still goes back to this crux of this advice, be active, eat healthy. Well, it's not easy for everyone to do that. And we're all not playing with the same deck of cards, especially when it comes to acquiring food. And there does tend to be a dichotomy between rural and urban environments to where in urban environments, it's how far do you have to walk to get to the closest place? Whereas in uh, rural environments, it's much more how far do you have to drive? And in both instances, there tends to be a plethora of convenience stores and lower quality food accessible. So if 
we, we talk about, yes, you can find healthy choices, but if you have to drive past a Popeye's, a Bojangles, a Chick-fil-A, and you know five other chicken joints before you ever get to a grocery store, odds are you're probably going to pull the trigger on that chicken a little bit more often. Yep. Especially if it's less expensive, at least your perception of the expense with respect to both financial out, you know, outlay and then time to prepare the food and perhaps technical ability to prepare the food. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here as far as like, you know, people's uh, cost calculation um, in any case. So yeah. what did you, what did you find here with respect to, I mean, was there like an average distance that, you know, people of certain socioeconomic statuses had to a, you know, healthy food joint or, uh, or what was the kind of big takeaway here? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can slice this, and this kind of gets into even how you define a food desert. It tends to be within an urban environment, a half mile being the uh, like definition for it being a food desert. But there's also some interesting statistics. Uh, it was in African-American communities in general, it tended to be a further, or sorry, not African-American communities in general, but African-American low SES uh, communities, it tended to be on average almost a mile further to grocery stores than in non-African American. And there also tended to be a much higher density of fast food chains. Um, and there were definitely some take-homes from SES as well, because there does tend to be a lot of similarities between urban poor and rural poor. And to your point, it is, it is the lack of public transportation often ends up being a hindrance because it's not like a lot of bus routes go out in the haulers to take people to their local grocery store. And the same can be said in a lot of the urban environments that are lower SES. Um, it, one of the interesting parts to it, there actually was an entire county in West Virginia that went almost two years without having a grocery store. Wait, what? Yeah. So and what's even more interesting about it is this county actually is right next to Kanawha County, which is the where the capital of West Virginia is. But there is a major discrepancy in socioeconomic status between the two. And it wasn't for lack of trying, but all these people really had access to for the better part of two years was convenience stores or driving into the next county in order to get food. So when people play the, uh, you know, this doesn't exist. It's not a thing. You always have healthy food options. You do. But if you're having to drive very large distances in order to procure that food, it is an added obstacle. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, this is actually something I alluded to earlier on my section um, about uh, effectively exercise inequalities and sort of access to places to be active. So a physical activity island, if you will. And it's just like, you know, parks, gyms, um, other sorts of places where they're, it's basically designated for physical activity, um, in inequalities and in access there, or it's particularly distance to, uh, has a robust effect on how much time people spend being physically active. In addition to other more well-known, um, components of SES, like income level, for example, um, all right, so let's let's make this practically applicable here. So, because you you know are a uh, uh, a an expert in physical therapy, particularly for youth athletes, that's your bread and butter. But you probably spend more time with these folks than their pediatrician. <laughs> and, uh, 
pretty much any other healthcare provider. Uh, do you actually counsel these the, the the kids or the parents or even bring up nutrition at all? Or is this something that you um, routinely talk about? It, it is something that we discuss, especially in the athletic population. But you know, I, I don't know that we necessarily need to broach a specific food desert conversation with any of our patients or clients. But it is meeting the person where they're at and understanding that what may be easy for us may not be easy for some other people. And I think yeah. that is really the integral take home out of this because, you know, most of us who would even be listening to this podcast, odds are have good access to food and, and a, a wide selection, but we are a small or we're not the largest subset of society at large. You know, the, the USDA, USDA report actually found that uh, 23.5 million households that live in low income areas are greater than a mile from a large grocery store. So Jeez. when you're talking about that type of number, like it, it, it really is hard just to blanket statement, eat healthy when there are obvious obstacles for individuals to do that. And not only that, you have to look into the factors such as if someone is lower SES, they may be working two jobs. They may be a single mother. There are, there are all these layers that are going to just slowly erode the ability for them to go home and cook a healthy meal every and it's not anything against them. In fact, it's something that we should probably be aware of when we're making blanket statements of this process is easy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, the Lancet has a 2017 series on health inequalities. Um, and and this is like a major part of their like preventative medicine, lifestyle medicine sort of uh, discussion. It's effectively like from at every level some of these inequalities uh, can contribute to differential health outcomes that you, you know, might not think about uh, just, you know, off the top of your head. So huge, huge potential uh, impact on the trajectory of somebody's, you know, health and well-being over their lifetime. So Derek, thank you so much for joining us on this, on the last uh, episode of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. We'll uh, make sure to touch base with you in the future if any uh, uh, interesting topics come up. Hi, I'm Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm also a barbell medicine pain and rehab clinician remotely. Last, but certainly not least, we're with Dr. Michael Ray for the July uh, issue of the Barbell Medicine Research Review, the podcast. And Mike, this month, the title of your article was On the Margins of Healthcare, Access for Those Experiencing Pain. I know, big surprise. You wanted to talk about pain again. Um, the article that you're, uh, the actual paper that you're reviewing is called Pain in Persons Who Are Marginalized by Social Conditions by Craig et al. in 2020. All right. So just to like start out, when we, we use the term or when you're, you're using the term marginalization or marginalized, what do you mean exactly? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'll, I'll give you the like official definition and it's a treatment of a person group or concept as insignificant or peripheral. Okay. I like that. And so are you using it in a different way or are you like just using that during mm -hmm. the review? No, that's pretty much how it's, it's basically used throughout the discussion. Um, and Craig et al uses it similarly in which they're basically discussing 
how groups who are seeking aid for persistent pain are are being socially marginalized based on race, ethnicity, um, social economic status, uh, all, all sorts of things. If someone wanted to use the term like discrimination, would you would that be fair or is this like specifically different? That's a good question. Um, I thought about that. I, to me, they're interchangeable. Like I, I don't know that I would see them as, as different. Okay. Um, I think it is discriminatory. I just think like, and as we'll probably find out in this conversation, I, I don't know that we're entirely sure at the professional level, like why the discrimination or marginalization is occurring. We're like aware of it, but unsure. Yeah. And so just as I, I think I mentioned this when I talked to Austin for his his uh, contribution this month, uh, but in case I didn't, or just as a repeat for the listeners at home, like if you are interested at all about inequalities in healthcare, like what do, like what are they and what do, the 2017 Lancet series on this, which is open access, it's free, uh, really dives deep into this issue. Not only like what are the inequalities, but like why are the inequalities there uh, as far as the best, as far as uh, we can tell right now. So really good like primer on this stuff. And then obviously our research review this month is very specific for um, pain management, for physical activity, uh, and, you know, the other topics we talked about. So super interesting. So let's, let's talk about uh, pain and some inequality, some marginalization. What sort of you know, is, is this like happening at every level or is this mainly at like the access level or where, if there is any, like is the major sort of margin, you know, uh, uh, yeah. inequality here? Yeah, it, it seems to be prevalent from the professional level up to the organizational level um, beyond just the individual provider, but also up to the organizational level as far as what is being seen in the data with marginalization. Um, I know you mentioned the Lancet series, Healthy People 2020 is also a great resource on their website. They literally mm-hmm. have like a widget where you can go see what what's called health disparities. So seeing like, why are we not seeing the same level of access to healthcare from a particular race or ethnicity? And we, and we have that data. We know like, um, and I talk about this in, in this month, that a particular race has higher access to healthcare comparatively to another race, uh, upwards of like a 30% difference. So we're like, oh, there's a disparity based on on race, but like, why why is this happening? Um, is kind of like the the larger issue here. Yeah. So, with respect to just pain, are we talking like how did they actually study this? Is this like primary care clinic visits, or is this any sort of seeing a medical provider at any level for pain for like you know either acute or chronic pain? So there's a lot of different ways. This was a, a review article, like a topical review on it. And so I actually went through and pulled some of their citations and then went through those specific articles within the write-up this month. And the kind of larger areas of interest that they had for, for marginalization were things like uh, homelessness. So they looked at um, people who were dealing with homelessness and what was their access uh, of care like. And I go through that and I kind of just try to give some context to it so so we're not just like talking about these things without definition. So I'll define homelessness and talk about prevalence within the U.S. and then how that affects healthcare access, but also the type of healthcare that's provided to people because we're realizing like it doesn't just affect access, but it also affects the quality of care that's being provided to folks. Torture survivors was another main group that the authors focused on. Indigenous populations, um, uh, LGBTQ2S uh, was another uh, subset that was being looked at, refugees, 
and uh, HIV and then also black veterans. And so they kind of go through each of these uh, socially marginalized groups and talk about various citations. And so I kind of went through and pulled more uh, recent and relevant citations that that would be beneficial for the audience to read about. And it was definitely a, a learning experience for me. There were a lot of things that I didn't realize was happening. Uh, one was like just looking at Medicare utilization. Uh, I believe that was the Black U.S. Veterans uh, was one of the citations. So they just look at like Medicare reimbursement and they talk about like when the fifth vital sign of pain was introduced into the system, it became like an automatic part of electronic medical record. And so you're supposed to be recording it. You know, we don't have to get into the discussion whether we agree with that or not, but it should be recorded equally from person to person to person. And they were seeing that it, it wasn't, which obviously leads to downstream care issues. If they're not recording that metric, then there's a good probability that maybe they're not receiving the same level of care that they should be. So it's just stuff like I didn't realize the layers of things that I was getting into and start, until I started writing this this month. Dude, I bet it's super fascinating. I mean, and I, and I know that from my own sort of review, uh, like when I went into the down the rabbit hole for physical activity, I was like, wow, I just... I, you, it's, it's stuff that you had probably thought about or at least maybe considered, you know, for, for a moment. But then when you actually like dive in, you're like, wow, this is an expansive topic and this is crazy and it makes me feel things yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, want to take action and, 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 you know, try to do our best to, to, to right some of these inequalities. So, and, and with that in mind, is there anything that would change your practice based on what you've learned here? I think it made me more aware, um, specifically like, and you, we might not even be aware of our own biases uh, without some self-reflection and like thinking about how we practice and engage with others. Uh, I know I try very hard in practice to go in and treat every human equally and just talk to the human in front of me. But it's also easy to forget it, like all these other influential factors like, oh, this person is dealing with, with homelessness or this person is dealing with HIV or, or something else that has categorized them for whatever reason for, for right or wrong and not thinking about the implications of that. And so I think for me, it just provided a, a better context or viewpoint of how to engage better with people who have the likelihood, the increased likelihood based on what I, what I read on this article for being socially marginalized and whether if you're not aware of it, I think it's harder to, to be cognizant of your interactions as well as possibly and address these marginalizations that are occurring. Is there any like, like clinical tool, like a, not a, I mean, I want to say screening tool, but you know, that's probably not really what we're doing here. Cause you take, if you take a social history, you kind of ferret that out, but uh, is there any sort of like questionnaire or other instrument that is being regularly used in practice to kind of like maybe identify those a little bit more automatically rather than, you know, making the clinician have the conversation, um, because they might miss stuff is what I'm getting at. If stuff, yeah. the more automatic this stuff becomes, the less you're likely to miss it. Yeah. So um, Craig actually goes, Craig at all goes through some of this stuff. And so they talk about like providing culturally safe care. So checking your biases, not assuming, you know, obviously you should be asking this stuff, but not assuming every person um, like in heterosexual relationships, like not making assumptions about individuals. And, and I, I don't even know, cause I don't want to, I don't want to, blame folks. I don't think it's nefarious. I don't think they're doing it purposely. I think we just all have biases and make assumptions, unfortunately. So like having culturally safe care, talking to humans, figuring out, you know, how is pain affecting their life? And then what are the various attributes 
of how these things could be influencing them. So they make recommendations like for each encounter with a patient, you should ask things about housing and how, how are they dealing with housing or then the homelessness state, you know, sleep disturbances, which I know we've talked about before, barbell medicine, financial issues, which I think are, are hard for people to talk about. But some of this can get quite severe. And maybe we don't even think about this in the US, but it's still very much an issue as far as inadequate funding for getting food and drink. You know, these will directly affect people as far as how they're dealing and coping with pain. Uh, absolutely. And then are they a socially isolated group, uh, substance uh, use issues? What's their immigration status like? So they have like a list of things that they think we as, as healthcare professionals should make sure we're asking. And then more of like, I think probably what you're getting at is uh, something that's a little more like systematic, which would be equip, which is research to equip primary health care for equity. Um, this is actually something that's like being researched and look at from the organizational level, like coming into hospital systems and to uh, major groups for healthcare. And what are they, what can they do systematically at the organizational level to ensure that there are steps in place that people are receiving health equity, health you know, equal access to healthcare for their local community, but then also equal access to quality of care. And then they also have it kind of tiered all the way down to the professional. Um, and so they go through things like having trauma and violence informed care, um, having cultural safety. And then also contextually tailored care, which contextually ta tailored care was actually very novel to me. But it's not just saying addressing the individual in front of you, but that the, the group the individual comes from and then the direct community demands and needs of the healthcare provider and the professional organization that the provider works for. So looking at the community level, what does this community need as it relates to healthcare access and then quality of care? I love it. I love it. So guys, go check out the July 2020 Barbell Medicine Research Review. If you're not subscribed, you can get the issue. Uh, you can download the issue off our website. All the individual issues are available for purchase. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, you want to read more about it, you want to go into the weeds and you get woke, uh, go check it out. Mike, thanks as always for joining us. We'll catch you on the next edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Thanks, Jordan. All right, that is a wrap on the Barbell Medicine Research Review for July 2020. This is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, if you're on your smartphone or wherever you're listening to this, uh, make sure to click uh, five stars, leave a review, leave a rating, send this to your friends. Really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep doing these things and bring you all the latest information in the health and fitness sectors. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this and helping us build our audience. We'll see you guys next Monday when we drop another podcast. See ya.